Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f What the f gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it. Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. You haven't heard from me in a few weeks because I haven't had any new material to share with you. And partly the reason is, is because I'm right in the midst of the building project on the summer home. But I do have an interesting story to tell. A couple weeks ago, I was hiking up at our, at our summer home area in the Uinta Mountains in Utah. And this is a hike that I've done maybe 15 times over the last 30 years. It's not a hike that I typically like to do because this is just an up and back hike. It's about seven miles and I climb about 1,300 vertical feet. But it's a long hike, but it's not particularly steep at any one place. But it's a good, it's a good workout. Well, anyway, I was walking up this trail and as you get higher and higher along this trail, the aspen become more beautiful, more straight up, more white, larger aspen. And I just happened to stop and look at probably about, hmm, probably about three, three and a quarter miles. I was almost to my destination, to the end of this trail. But just before I got to the end of this trail, I just happened to stop and look at this aspen they had some writing on it, and the writing on it was 1938, and then the names of some people on this Aspen, and the people that apparently come from Price, Utah, which was way out of the way for anybody that lives in Price, Utah. But for some reason, they'd gone up this trail, which is not listed on any topographic maps and is really pretty much overgrown right now, and had gone up this trail and then wrote at the bottom after 1938, Bear Trail. As I'm reading this, I'm thinking, I've never seen any bear on this trail. And just then I hear this noise right in front of me, and there is a bear cub climbing a tree. Mama bear up there told the bear cub, there's a human around here, get up the tree. And if I had not have stopped and looked at this, I would have walked right by mama bear, close to the bear cub, and I'm pretty sure I would have been mauled by mama bear. So I don't know what made me stop and read this Aspen on this particular day, but I'm glad I did. Nonetheless, what I did is I took three photographs of the cub, and I may post them on the website if you're curious to see what it looks like. And after I took the photographs, I'm thinking, what the heck am I doing? Mama bear's around. I better uh, better get out of here. So I pulled my pistol. I always hike with a pistol for a couple reasons. Number one, for self-defense. And number two, if I am ever hurt, and remember, I'm hiking by myself. If I am ever hurt and there's a search and rescue mission looking for me, uh, I'll be able to shoot off some bullets to direct them to where I'm at. Bullets, the sound of a bullet firing in the mountains go, travels a long way. So I always carry a pistol with me. So anyway, I pulled out my pistol and I put a round in the chamber. And just as I put a round in the chamber, the mama bear ran right across the trail and disappeared into the woods on the other side. And I just start backing down this trail as quickly as possible. 
And after about 200 yards of backing down the trail, I turn around and, and start walking normally and keep checking my back trail. But the mama bear did not track me down, which I'm glad. We had some bear problems up at the ranch about 30 years ago. At that point in time, the National Forest Service had relocated some problem bears out of Yellowstone into the Uinta Mountains. And the bears were a problem up in Yellowstone because they were breaking into houses and breaking into garbage cans and just being a pest. And so they moved them down to the Uintas, and the bears, when they got to the Uintas, found our summer home area, started doing the same thing in the Uintas, and then the National Forest Service came up and trapped that bear, and I don't know what happened to him, but I think they took him somewhere else. But we haven't really seen any bears for a long time since then. Like I said, I've seen moose, elk, deer, grouse, snakes, porcupine, badgers. My wife saw a mink the other day. And apparently there's otter in the river as well, but I've never seen an otter. And, of course, beaver as well. They, they're almost a pest up in our valley because we have a river that runs through our valley and they're damming it up a lot and uh, cutting down some of the aspen around the houses. So a lot of other wildlife, but we haven't seen bear in 30 years. So with that out of the way, let's get on to the topic today. But before we get to that interview, I want to just let you know that if you're trying to learn how to sail, I have a series of audio lessons available for you. And the first ones you would want to listen to would be the basic keelboat certification. These are lessons for the ASA 101 exam. And if you want to get the first eight lessons of that 16 lesson series free, sign up for my email list and I will give you a link to be able to go and download the first eight lessons for free. And if you like them, you might go ahead and choose to listen to the other eight lessons and pay me for it. That'll be up to you. But this will give you a good feel for my teaching style and if, if you think it'll be worth it to pay the money for the rest of the lessons. In addition to that lesson, I also have lessons for the ASA 103, which is the basic coastal cruising certification, and the ASA 104, which is the bareboat certification, which is what you need if you ever want to be able to go out and charter a bareboat by yourself. So with that quick advertisement out of the way, let's get on to my interview. I'm with my friend and sailing companion, Neil Fletcher. Neil's coming to us from his studio in Santa Monica, California. Neil and I had a great adventure last summer. I went sailing with Neil on his boat, Arcturus. Neil, thanks for joining me. You're welcome. Happy to be here. So, Neil, I've got in front of me the Swedish route that we took. First mm -hmm. of all, before we get to that, let's describe to, to our listeners, to our friends out there, your experience this summer. This is a boat that you have bought sight unseen, and you went over there and got the boat in the water. So take us from the beginning of the summer and what your impressions were when you got there. Okay, so I arrived on um, the first day of June and I drove out from Stockholm Airport down to the town of Vesteros, which is about 90 miles west of Stockholm uh, at the end of a very large lake called Lake Malaren, which is where the boat, which is called Arcturus, was on the hard, where she'd been there for a couple of seasons. She'd been left there by Andy Shell of the um, <clears throat> 59 North podcast, which I now think is actually called On the Wind podcast. So um, it was, uh, you know, Vastoras 
is a quiet, well, I, by my standards, living in Los Angeles, it's a quiet town, but apparently it's the fourth largest city in Sweden. But um, it's dominated by the lake. It's very much a lakeside community. And um, I got there late on Sunday afternoon. And after checking into my hotel, you know, it gets dark very, very late there. So at 8.30 in the evening, I walked down to the marina and I found the boat pretty quickly. She was covered up, but she was very easy to identify. And I just opened the uh, the uh, <clears throat> the cover and had a look at her. So my first impressions was was just sort of, um, you know, sort of what have, my, what have I gotten myself into here? <laughs> So, so you met up with Andy the next day. Is that what happened? Yes, that's right. Um, you know, I had jet lag going from the west coast over to Europe, west to east. It's pretty hard to get uh, to to for your body to adapt. So, I always find myself waking up at three thirty or four o'clock in the morning for the first week, probably. But I was pretty excited anyway, and the sun was out. So I, I was at the boat taking the cover off in the early morning chill, blowing my fingers. It was, it was in the high 30 degrees. It was like 38 degrees. So coming from Southern California, that was a bit of an adjustment. But um, I spent a few hours on the boat myself just um, taking the cover off, uh, taking the frame off, and then opening her up and looking around. And then Mia and his uh, – I beg your pardon – Andy and his wife Mia showed up around 930 and we spent the next couple of hours just getting her ready to launch. We launched her, and then her, her masts were just across the lake, actually at another marina. So we just uh, motored over there, and we spent the next day and a half rigging her and getting her ready to roll. So you store the boat with the mast down. And is that standard for Sweden? Does, do most people take their masts off when they store their boats? Um, well, it's, you know, I saw both, to be honest with you. Uh, when I ended up putting her up at the end of the summer, the, um, they told me that uh, the boatyard, that I, would, I was more than welcome to keep the masts up. So I think uh, you, you've got a choice of doing both. But the, the cover, the custom cover that was made for it didn't have a hole for the mast. So I was happy to take it down. And, um, yeah, and they're just stored near, nearby. And, you, you know, obviously you keep your rigging inside the boat. And then you uh, you re-rig it before you remast it. That's uh, pretty much the protocol we followed. So how long does it take? I mean, you're going to be doing this next year, so I'm sure you took a lot of photographs and videos. How long do you think it's going to take to re-step the mast next year? Um, between well, stepping the mast itself, provided you know what you're doing, is probably can be done. You know, in three quarters of a day. It took us about a day because there's the main mast and the mizzen mast. And there's plenty of other things to do as well. Um, you know, there's a lot more to preparing a boat than, than just re-rigging her. <laughs> so with Andy sort of in charge, it took about a day and a half. Um, but Andy is a very experienced fellow, and he was a whirlwind of activity. I think I'll be moving a little bit slower than him when I re-rig her next year. But I'm going to allocate two and a half to three days, and I think that will be fine. Between that and the other stuff that you have to do, I think two and a half, three days will be fine. All right. Now, did you go out for a sail with Andy on the boat to, to, to sort of do a shakedown cruise on it? Well, yes and no. Um, he was planning to drop me off, so to speak, or for, for him to leave in Stockholm anyway. Um, so what we did was, um, we left, I think on a Tuesday afternoon and we stopped off about halfway in a lovely little town called Enchopping. Um, 
And so that sort of served as half a day of a shakedown cruise. And then the following day, we spent the whole day motoring because the winds, we, Andy was in a bit of a hurry. We had about 45 nautical miles to cover. So um, it was probably actually half and half, half motoring and half sailing. So that was what served as the shakedown, so to speak. Um, so it was probably less than perfect. If I, you know, if I had my druthers, I'd have had four or five days with Andy aboard. But that's just because of perhaps I was a little timid and a little nervous about taking on a new boat in a foreign country. It was quite a big challenge. But as it turned out, I learned all the lessons, at least some of the lessons that I needed to learn. And uh, it was fine. And, uh, and, a, and a day and a half in Andy's company is probably worth a week in anyone else's because he's a, he's a very knowledgeable fellow. Okay. All right. So you, you go into Stockholm and then you meet up with a friend and you go sailing for a little while before I get there, right? Yes, that's right. Um, I have a, a very dear old friend from school in London who lives uh, himself. His name is Richard and he lives in, in Spain. And so we took the boat out from um, the the central marina in Stockholm, which is called Um And perhaps I should stop uh, and just sort of mention sort of by the by that the shoe is very much on the other foot with regards of pronunciation. You know, you probably know, um, Franz, that I can be a bit pedantic when it comes to proper pronunciation. <laughs> One of my many faults. But for anyone who speaks Swedish or understands Swedish, I'm going to apologize in advance because this interview, I'm going to butcher the Swedish language throughout. So um, be forewarned. <laughs> but um, the, the Swedish language, interesting and challenging language to learn. And I think for the benefit of the listeners, I'm going to pronounce the words as they of the places as they appear, because if I pronounce them as as very often as as they are actually said, you'll never find them on a map or anywhere else. It would be impossible. So just for the sake of clarity, I'm going to say them as uh, read them as they as they're written. But um, yes, we there's a lovely little cut about 45 minutes east of where we were moored um, in Vasahamnen. Um, called uh, Skurusundet, and it's considered the back door into Stockholm. There is uh, two very large main channels that lead out to the Baltic, and those are the channels on which you'll see the big cruise liners and the ferries that head sort of all, point, all points east to Estonia and Latvia and Russia and all the, the neighboring countries in the Baltic. But there are um, there is a, a lovely, as I said, little cut. Uh, it's all really like a little fjord that a lot of the Stockholmers who have boats and use some of they use as the back door or the, or the you know, to get back into Stockholm. And um, so we took a, a turn down there. Uh, and after about probably 45 minutes, it comes into a place called Bagansfjorden, where the, 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 the water opens up into a large fjord where you can tack back and forth. It's probably a mile and a half, two miles wide in places. So once you're there, you can head down to most of the places in the southern end of the archipelago. And that's what I did with my friend Richard. We sailed for 10 days and really got a sense both of the, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the destinations that are worth seeing in the southern archipelago and obviously got used to the boat as well. What, were you, what was your biggest surprise about the boat? Was there anything that really um, was different than you were anticipating or were you fairly well prepared when you arrived? No, I think I was fairly well prepared. Um, on the sales materials on Andy's website, it was really pretty exhaustive about the boats. He had a, a boat. I mean, he had an exhaustive list of what the boat's facilities were. 
and plus an exhaustive number of photos. So the only thing I would say is that, you know, when photos are taken with, um, with GoPro cameras, because it's a wide angle lens, sometimes the interior looks a little bit larger than it really is, but that's to be expected. So there was a slight adjustment for that, but it's not as though the boat was any smaller, it, it, you know, than, than advertised. I guess the other thing is with a boat that's 36 foot with classic design, where you have a much smaller waterline, then you have a little less room down below than you expected. Um, the last time I'd been on a 36 foot boat was in 2007 when I was on a Beneto that I chartered in Croatia and you really feel with modern boats that if you've got a 35 foot waterline you've got 35 feet of, of space down below you don't have that in you know 30 year old or 40 year old design so that took a little bit of getting used to but she was she is a very comfortable um, safe uh, and uh, enjoyable boat and very well appointed and well equipped for a simple boat so there was no sort of disappointment about that i mean and the longer i sailed on the boat the happier i was that i bought her when i arrived you had pretty much figured out the public transportation system the the wi-fi systems the the cell phone systems talk to her to t tell tell us a little bit about how you figured to communicate because you ran your business pretty much from your boat while you were while you were sailing this summer yes that's right and i have to um give a a, a big vote of thanks to andy's wife mia who of course is is swedish and she had given me quite an extensive sort of list heads up before i left i mean the the, the key to it really is that the swedish government seems to approach um, connectivity, wireless communications, etc., as a vital piece of infrastructure that helps business get get done. So, as a result, it seems that the companies that run the infrastructure there, I believe, are regulated as as to what they can charge. So that it's a lot cheaper there than it is here. So, in essence, what I did was I made sure that my iPhone was unlocked before I went there. I swapped my existing SIM card out for a SIM card that I bought on my arrival at Arlanda Airport, which is the main airport in Stockholm. And I got um, a package of um, 10 gigabytes of data and I think a, a small amount of calling because I didn't really need to call too many people. But 10 gigabytes of data cost me less than $30. And with that 10 gigabytes of data, I was able to use the phone as a hotspot, a Wi-Fi hotspot uh, connected, tethered to my, uh, to my laptop. And I was able to surf the Internet every day, get all the, my emails. I was able to um, produce the newspaper, which I run, when I was on the boat, even on one occasion when I didn't have uh, a, a Wi-Fi connection. I wasn't a, a guest harbour. I was out swinging the hook in the middle of nowhere. But I got a strong enough a signal from my phone to do that. I was uploading big files uh, to my printer. And um, it wasn't until I had a, a greedy guest who was uh, Bogart, who's, who shall be nameless, who was Bogarting off my signal that I needed to top up and buy some more. So Nameless. <laughs> I think, yes, I think in terms of, um, of, of usage of the gig, I think I topped it up one more time. So I was there for 10 weeks, and in that time I spent $50 on internet connectivity to run my business, which is just it's a bargain by anybody's standard. All right. Yeah, well, we won't talk about who that phantom guest was. <laughs> and I think you also asked me about the, um, the <clears throat> public transport system too. Right. Again. 
again, that's a similar mindset that they have there in terms of the infrastructure for people getting around. It took me about a day and a half to figure out how to get any from anywhere to anywhere. It, there's a series of apps that you can download uh, from the Swedish Transport Authority, and one will list the buses and the trams, and there's another one that will list the T-Barna, which is the subway system, which is pretty extensive, and they have a, a fabulous rail system as well. So you put the the app on your phone, you input your your payment information, you put where you are and where you want to go, and it will tell you when the boats or the trains or the ferries or the subway is leaving, how much it will cost. You buy your ticket instantaneously, which you show on your entry onto the bus or the tram, whatever. Um, and it's astonishing how simple and cheap it is. Um, and as I said, all the apps, the apps are all in English. So it was really seamless. I, I felt totally comfortable in a foreign country using that system within about a day and a half of arriving. And it certainly made everything much easier during my trip there. All right. So I arrived and I've talked about uh, my, my adventures on getting over there. I happened to go over at the same time as they were having the Ataturk airport attack. So I was delayed. Uh, to get to my boat, which I basically canceled this summer and came out. But I arrived, as I recall, on July uh, July 2nd. Is that right? I think it was. I think it was July yeah. 2nd. And, I, and you met me at the airport because you found, through your experience, that it was less expensive and more convenient rather than to take the train from the airport into Stockholm just to take the bus. And what amazed me was the bus actually had Wi-Fi on it. So it was very convenient to catch up on my email and so forth, uh, riding it on the bus as well as looking around. So we did some, some provisioning in Stockholm. We went to uh, a store in Stockholm. What was the name of the store we went to? Do you remember? Yeah, that was called Sabi's, and it's about um, it's a five-minute perhaps a 10-minute bus ride. Uh, you can pick up a bus right outside Vassahamnen, um, uh, which is the name of the uh, the, 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 the harbour. And the, it stops at a place called Kala Plan. And right there, there is a shopping centre with the ubiquitous um, grocery store, which you'll find all over Sweden, called Ica, I-C-A. But there is also a more upmarket place called Sabi's, which is a, a really a wonderful place. Fantastic uh, choices, a selection of food and fish and cheese and bread and, and vegetables. So that's really a great place if you do happen to start your trip from Vassahamnen. Um, stocking up at Sabi's is very, very worthwhile. So, And there's also a, a system Balaget there, which is the government-run liquor store. So you can stock up on your alcohol too because it's not always easy to find once you get outside into the archipelago. Okay. So you and I get on the boat, and we, we, we plan on sailing away, and we're stopped because there's a big regatta going on on the day. And we try to get south, and we have uh, some some boats come up to us and say, you can't go, you can't go, because there's a big regatta. Well, was that a special day that we happened to try to leave on? Was that a Sunday, or was that a holiday of some sorts? Do you recall? Well, it was a Sunday. I don't think there's anything special about um, that particular day. That was um, Sunday, July 3rd. I don't think that's a special day in the calendar. But you've got to remember that during the summer, which is so short and glorious in Sweden. They try to fit as much in as they can. And as a maritime nation, there's always 
one regatta or another taking place. So I guess it was just the, the luck of the draw. But in the end, I guess we were only delayed. They, they told us we'd delayed to be delayed for at least a couple of hours, and I think it ended up about 45 minutes. And as you said on the last po- podcast, we saw the boats going by, and we just followed the fleet, snuck in behind them. And once we were out, we were on our way. Yeah, yeah. And that was a very, to me, that was a real eye-opening day because I had always imagined uh, the Swedish archipelago to be a little bit like uh, the Northwest, Pacific Northwest in the United States, you know, pine-covered islands and, uh, and a few places to anchor. But what I saw was, uh, was highly developed waterfronts pretty much everywhere we sailed. People had saunas, private docks, nice houses, uh, all the way, pretty much everywhere we, we went that day. We went down through some narrow canals, and then we went into some open areas. But what surprised me was they, they, uh, they've done it upright. They haven't made it hard to build houses along the coast, or at least they can't stop people now because it's been done for so many generations. And... It was a delight. It was a true delight. And there's a lot of people out on the water all the time. And uh, yeah, to me, that was a, a big surprise. I was expecting um, islands with oh, more like the Northwest or the Gulf Islands in Canada that might have a few houses on them, but not, not that many. But the entire archipelago, when I was sailing with you, was, was pretty well developed. But not not a, developed in a United States sense, but in a much more subdued Scandinavian sense. Is, do you, what do you think, Neil? No, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, you certainly get the sense that they have a real sense of stewardship about the land. They feel very connected. Um, they're part and parcel of the land. Now, I was reading when I was doing a little research that of the 30,000 islands in the archipelago, only uh, only 130 are inhabited year-round. But from what we saw, that doesn't that tells only a fraction of the story because essentially any island that is, you know, a city block long or bigger, will have houses on it, and perhaps they're just summer houses. Perhaps people just stay there for the two or three months of the summer, and the rest of the time they've got an apartment in Stockholm or whatever. Um, but they you know, and as you go further away from the city centre, the 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 houses become f- fewer and far between. But nevertheless, as as long as an island is big enough to support a house and a dock and a sauna, it's pretty much will have one there. But they've been very tasteful. The houses are all almost all the sort of uniform red paint that everyone associates with the Swedish countryside, and the, there doesn't seem to be any ostentatiousness or showing off everything is just sort of quiet and modest even though it's sort of clearly prosperous and comfortable these aren't shacks in the middle of nowhere you get the sense that they've got all mod cons you know modern conveniences but they've really done it very nicely and very tastefully they 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 live in harmony with nature which is one of the many wonderful things that i discovered about the you know sweden and as you know this was my fifth or sixth visit there um, because we have friends who have a country house in Sweden. But I feel that I learned, you know, 99% of what I know about Sweden, I learned in the past 10 weeks in the archipelago. You really, Once you're there for a prolonged period of time, immersing yourself among the people and living like a Swede, you really sort of tap into their mentality. 
And they've really done a wonderful job about using but not abusing the archipelago. They seem to realize it's a national treasure and they seem determined to keep it that way. Yeah, it was great. I, I really enjoyed it. But what I really noticed was you had to pay attention all the time or else lay a route out on your GPS ahead of time and, and make sure you followed your waypoints because it would be very easy to get lost in the archipelago. And, and I thought you did a great job of navigating through there because, you know, you turn around and these are relatively flat islands. There's not, there's not a lot of, um, you, you know, there, there, there's not a lot of vertical landscape to get oriented from. So you have to pay attention to where you're going. Um, and, and it, I remember one day I, I was relying on you and I had no clue where I was at. And when I tried to turn on my, uh, my GPS app, I had no, well, I didn't have a GPS signal. I, when I was just looking at a chart, I said, where the heck are we at the, on this chart? Because I had a real hard time orienting myself from a chart alone. Without a GPS, I would have had a real hard time locating where I was at. So it was, it was very interesting. Now, the first night, we had a fairly long day, and we went down to Orno. And I'm looking at this this map that you kindly put together for me, and I'm going to put it up on the website if I have your okay to do that and show them the route we took. And uh, if people are curious, they can they can follow this this podcast on with this uh, this chart that you put together showing our route. Is that okay? Yes, no problem. Okay, so we went to Orno, and you'd been there before, right? Yes, that's right. Um, it, if I could just revisit that your comment from a moment ago, for sailors who are used to cruising and they just their idea of perfect cruising is you put on, you set your waypoints, you put on your um, autopilot, and then you sit down with a cocktail and read a book. That's not what sailing in Sweden is about. Um, if you do that, you'll, you will find you will have a bump on your hull very in very short order. You need to pay attention because there are a lot of very small. Um, very, very small um, granite rocks. Some are submerged or barely submerged or awash. Some are barely 6 to 12 to 18 inches out of the water. And, and although they are all marked very clearly on the Navionics charts, nevertheless, you need to keep a weather eye out at all times. And a couple of times I thought I knew exactly where, where we were on the Navionics chart, so I just lost my concentration and I would look ahead and I would see a little bit of a wash coming from sort of 100 or 200 meters in front of me. And I thought, ah, OK, there's a little submerged island there that's going to take a bite out of my hull if I'm not careful. So you really need to stay on top of that. Um, and then as far as maps are concerned, I did keep a blog, um, uh, which is sailingarcturus.com. And I've I've got all of the maps of our trip, and obviously it'll be on 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 your website too, so people can see. But um, yes, as far as Orno is concerned, about um, three quarters of the way down the east end of the island, there is an inlet that leads up to a place called Kirkviken, and Viken is a is a very common word. I think it means bay, or but I stand to be corrected. But Kirk obviously means church, and the bay is a lovely quiet bay there with a little jetty um room for probably about 12 boats um although we never saw more than two or three and i visited the place three times 
and there's a the 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 prospect is is dominated by a big church there so that's why it's called Kirkviken but um that's a lovely place to stop there's a little restaurant there very peaceful um the water is comparatively warm and if you don't want to stay at the the, the jetty as you'll remember you and I explored that uh, that inlet a little bit further up and there's lots of good anchorage spots as well further up if you choose to do it that way right now we should uh, let's just point out a little bit of the costs of, uh, of cruising. We, we went to the grocery store and we planned on uh, cutting the cost of the trip because uh, one of the big costs of any trip is going to be eating at restaurants. So we chose to cook on board quite a bit. And so we bought, I think it was the first time it was about $300 worth of food. And for the most part, we might have added another couple hundred dollars. And I was with you, I think, for a total of uh, 10 days. 10, 10 days. Yeah. And that pretty much covered us. And we went out to eat one time when we got back to Stockholm. But other than that, we pretty much cooked on the boat. So, right. so the food was more expensive. But if you're cooking for yourself, it turned out to be a pretty reasonably priced trip from my perspective. Oh, absolutely. You know, I'm, my, um, my yardstick by which to measure food costs is probably a little skewed because, you know, I live in Santa Monica, which is an expensive place to go. And my nearest grocery store is Whole Foods or Whole, or Whole Paycheck, as it's sometimes called. So I didn't find it to be particularly expensive. I found it good value because the food, everything in the grocery stores was high quality, even though you, you, you would be feel as though you were out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, with pretty much hardly any exception, you always felt that there was a decent choice of of, of, uh, of foods to choose from. And typically, when we would go out shopping, we would spend $100, 120 140 and that would last us for, you know, two, three, four days, and then we'd come back and do some more. The really th- the thing that Sweden is obviously famous for is that you go into a bar and a round of drinks for four people might cost you fifty or sixty dollars. <laughs> so you, you have to avoid that if you possibly can. And um, you know, you feel feel free to keep a diplomatic silence about what happened in Sandham that one night. Um, <laughs> I will. I will. All right. But, but if you go to the system Balajet uh, at any of the major towns, you'll find that they serve the wine and liquor just like you're used to buying here. And it's a government run, but they don't um, they don't profiteer. The prices were very similar to what I would buy in a, a wine store in Los Angeles. So, it, yes, it, it, I found it really quite reasonable. And, the, the, of course, the, the fees at the marinas, the so-called gasthams, um, I think they are probably dictated by the Swedish government because we never paid more than $40. Everything seemed to be pretty much between 30 and 40 even the one Vasahamnan right in the center of town in the middle of the Swedish waterfront. You know, if you want a hotel room in that part of the world, it'll cost you close to $300 a night. But if you're on the, on the boat, it'll cost you about 10% of that. So that's really it. That, that aspect of it, it's wonderfully economical, I think. All right. Now, I remember the day after we left Urno, and, or that's, I'm just looking at the name of the island, Urno, uh, we decided you had, a, you had a destination in mind, and I think it was Musco or Mikram, one of those islands. And I had to teach you a little bit about what cruising sailing was all about. Let's talk <laughs> about that. <laughs> yes, that's absolutely right. We were planning to go south to Otor. Uh, well, it's U-T-O, but I believe it's pronounced Otor. 
And we had seen, we were en route, and it was a pleasant enough sail to start with, but we had seen that there was a little hidden away anchorage that we wanted to pop our head into and just see what it was like, just for future reference. And while we were there, it was a nice enough place, pretty peaceful and sheltered. You said to me, well, Neil, you said, let's try reefing the sails since you haven't had any experience reefing. So we, we put a reef in the sails just for fun. And then we, we popped our head out and nose out to where we just come from. And the conditions had changed. And suddenly we had sort of, it seemed like it was 18, 16, 18 knot winds right on the nose. And we had to beat our way out. Um, and it was pretty tiring. It wasn't that much fun. And you said to me, you know, Neil, this isn't the kind of sailing I like to do. I'm a downwind sailor. So if we, you know, let's choose our destination based on where the winds are coming from. Let's work with the winds rather than against them. So uh, and I was more than willing to do that as well. So we just changed our destination to this island called Huvudskar, which I'd heard really wonderful things about. It's on the out, outer edge of the archipelago. And basically it was a broad reach uh, almost the whole way, and it was a, a very, much more pleasant sail. So uh, that was another lesson learned. That was a great anchorage, too. Let's describe, this is your first experience with trying to to to, to uh, anchor the Scandinavian style. So let's describe what, what we found when we got there. Okay. Well, as you head east, further out into the Baltic, the islands become... Um, uh, much less uh, forested because they it's more windswept and desolate. So instead of having a thick forest of pine trees as you have on the inner archipelago, you'll have hardy bushes and brush and lichen and moss, and everything seems a lot more desolate and a lot more windswept. Now, um, Huvudskar, which I was told is actually pronounced Huvudsver, but it's it's uh, it's written H U V U D. S-K-A-R, is a group of four little islands which sort of surround this small bay in the middle. There's a little jetty and there is one mooring ball that's put there by the Swedish Cruising Association. When we were there, no one was on the mooring ball, at least not when we came in. But there was a cluster of boats that were moored to, uh, bows to, as they say. And the, the, the way the topography works over there is that the, these granite rocks come out of nowhere. Uh, they come up from the seabed and above the water, but they come up at a very sheer angle. So what that means is you can come in really pretty close to them. In fact, close enough to step off your bow onto the rocks without actually, you know, damaging your gel, your gel coat. So the, the favored way, provided you're in a sheltered anchorage, is that you drop a stern anchor, usually off of some sort of webbing reel. You slowly approach, the person on the bow steps off, and then you secure the boat with two bow lines. Sometimes if you've got uh, some, uh, some trees, you can, you can secure them to some trees. You can secure them to some boulders. And if all else fails, you have these things called berg skills, which are basically pitons, like tent pegs that you tap into the granite rock and then you attach it that way. And that's what we did. We had some help from local Swedish cruisers who were moored right next to us, and they sort of showed us the rope, so to speak. And then once you've secured at the front, then you tighten up your stern anchor. And, you know, if all, all goes well, you will be have a safe, snug and uneventful night. And that was at least what we'd hoped for when we got there. That's right. Now, I, that that island or that group of islands to me was one of the most memorable spots on the entire trip because it felt like you were really out on the edge you felt like uh, you were a long ways away from from anywhere it was windswept and the, the swedish sailors that were there 
they helped us a lot. I mean, we, we were sort of, you know, fumbling along. And I always say you always provide your fair share of entertainment wherever you go. And so we provided them with a little bit of entertainment because we didn't know what we were doing. And they helped us quite a bit. Um, they took our bow lines because it was still quite a quite a jump from the bow of your boat to the uh, to the rocks. And even then, you could easily have fallen right into the water or slipped in the water. But they helped us a lot. But when we walked around that island, I found that particularly appealing. And we we ran into a family of um, two or three women and their children that were there for a week. And you took a picture of them. Do you remember that? Yes, yes, I do. I mean, what was interesting, apart from the the desolate, windswept nature of the island, is that there were, I think it was originally a customs house or a place that you would first check in if you were bringing goods from another country into Sweden. So there was sort of a couple of government buildings. There was a rather impressive lighthouse, and there were just two or three other private buildings, one of which... Uh, was a sort of a dormitory where people would will come for the summer, which you can book. And the, the family we met was three separate families who'd come together. The, the husbands weren't there, but the wives were there with the children. So there were three ladies and I think probably about eight or nine children. And they come every year, they told us, to detox. That was exactly the word that they used, detox, um, because there's no electricity, there's no running water. So um, what they do is they, you know, the light, they, they cook everything on, um, on with propane and the lights is oil lamps. And um, there is one water supply. There's a cistern with a green pump in the middle of the island. And this is an island that you can walk from one side to the other in, you know, 10 minutes. And so everyone who is there for the summer uses this one communal pump to pump their water up. So it was really this sense of getting back to nature. And the, the Swedes really like to do that. I think they think there's an inherent virtue in living a simple life. And so uh, but I could see the appeal. But uh, as you said, you really do feel that you're out there because if we had continued east from Hovudskar, our next stop would have been Estonia. So it's really uh, it's the last post. It's the last post of, of the uh, eastern archipelago. Now the next morning we got a rude awakening, though. Yes, we certainly did. I think it was about six thirty or seven, and there was a, a gentle bump. And while I was just sort of processing what that was, then there was a hard bump immediately afterwards. And um, you woke up, and I woke up at the same time. You immediately um, put the uh, started the engine because we it was obvious what had happened. The wind had shifted. And now we were being blown towards the rocks. Uh, and although we had the stern anchor out, uh, out it, the wind had shifted sort of slightly more onto the beam. So the boat was sort of yawing across a little bit. And I think probably the, the, the anchor may have moved a little bit as well. But it wasn't cat- catastrophic. It wasn't uh, the iceberg hitting a tit- the Titanic hitting an iceberg. You know, I jumped off, quickly got the pitons out with the help of our neighbor. And what was interesting is that when we'd moored the night before, there were three three boats next to us and when we woke up there was only one next to us and the other two had crossed the bay and they were now sharing the um the swedish cruising club buoy that we'd that we'd seen on our way in so clearly that was that's a little local knowledge for you they could see the way the wind was blowing literally and figuratively and they made adjustments accordingly so it and that would be my takeaway there unless you're super comfortable if any of our listeners go there to hovard and they are 
unless they're super comfortable and experienced doing bows to mooring, I would take advantage of that mooring buoy in the middle of the because it's you know it's a it'll be a two minute row and you're in your dinghy or with the outboard if you want to get onto the land. But then again, you won't have to worry about leaving in a hurry at 7 a.m., which is what we did. We, there was no morning ablutions. There was no morning coffee. We just pulled up the anchor and we, we set sail to our next destination. Which was what? Which was um, Malmakavan. Um, again, having spent the night on in a nature harbor, I wanted to go back to a marina. Um, not that there's anything wrong with roughing it, but um, as I said, the, it, Malmakavan I'd been recommended to by a, a British sailor who I'd met on my first day in Stockholm, who has been going there with his wife to the archipelago for 14 years. And Malmökvarn is about um, 14 nautical miles northeast of Huvudskar, up a small inlet. And um, it's a, a, a lovely, compact little place. Um, when we arrived, we had a little bit of drama when we arrived because there was a, a, a rainstorm that hit us, which we found quite common. We would, as you probably recall, there would be a 30 or a 45 minute rainstorm and then the sun would come out and it would be beautiful and calm for the rest of the day. Um, so that spot probably holds about 30 boats, I would think. And there's a, a nice little uh, restaurant serving excellent food there. And there is also a terrific sauna. If you walk about five minutes from the uh, marina, you up a little hill past uh, these hedgerows bursting with summer flowers. Right at the end, you'll find a little room, a laundry hut where you can do your laundry. And just to the right of that, there is a sauna, a wood fired sauna, which you can uh, book with the harbour master. So you and I, Franz, took advantage of that. Um, and then when you come out the sauna, you can have a, uh, a cold shower. But what I discovered on a subsequent visit with my family is just around the corner from there, perhaps another 200 meters, there's a lake, a beautiful, calm and temperate lake that you can just jump in and cool off for half an hour, an hour. It's not freezing cold. So it's a, that's a very pleasant spot as well for anyone who wants to visit that part. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, watch go into iTunes and, and write a review and give it a rating. I'd really appreciate it. Also, I'm thinking of changing the name of the podcast from Sailing in the Mediterranean to something else because I do cover a lot of other topics other than just sailing in the Mediterranean. I don't like to be limited uh, to just sailing in the Mediterranean. And I've reached out to a lot of people over the last few weeks about doing an interview, and I'm not getting much positive response from the people I'd like to talk to. Uh, so I'd like to not limit myself to the Mediterranean. So I may want to change the name of the podcast to something else like like Andy Shell at 59 North did recently. If you have comments, drop me a note. Franz1 at medsailor.com. I like hearing from my listeners. If you're ever sailing and you want somebody to sail with you, if I can, I'll come out and go sailing with you. I always look for opportunities to meet new people and go sailing. So thanks for listening. And get out there and go sailing. Joe? Do you have something to tell me? No, I don't think so. I just got off the telephone with Bill Rutherford. Princeton can use a guy like Joe. What? Princeton can use a guy like Joe. His exact words. That's unbelievable. You're as good as in.
I knew you could do it. Haven't I been telling you? Every once in a while, you just gotta say, what the heck? And take some chances. You are so right. You made me very proud. I was just thinking where we might be 10 years from now, you know? <laughs>